so much of your pain in life has come from thinking you needed to change who you are to get what you want, when really you need to be more you. You need to spend the time figuring out who you are, what makes you tick, what your offerings are, and turn the light up on those things. Be more of those things. Hey, everybody. Emily Abadi here. You are listening to Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride towards your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. What a week it was on Hurdle to kick things off this year with our annual Turning the Page series. Now, we are getting back into the regular swing of things today with Lauren Fleshman. She's one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time and author of the book Good for a Girl, which comes out tomorrow, January 10th. Now, of course, I'll make sure to link it in the show notes. I really, really, really appreciate Lauren's way with words in our discussion today from sharing her experience with depression to talking about the height of her running career, the descriptions they instantly bring you back with her to these life moments in such a really special way. She talks with me about her experience as a sponsored athlete and also how it felt to write her book during such an isolating time for the world in a pandemic plus her hopes for women in sport in the future. A little insight into my process here. Now, I usually listen to an episode about three times before it goes live. And to be candid, I have already listened to parts of this episode multiple times, small clips from Lauren, because honestly, it really just, I find her insights truly thought-provoking and genuinely beautiful. So I know you are going to love this one. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on social. It is at Hurdle Podcast. I myself am over at Emily Abadi. And if you have yet to do so, the beginning of a new year is the perfect time to add some more motivation to your inbox. Make sure you are subscribed to the weekly Hurdle newsletter by clicking on over to the show notes. By doing that, you will get me in your inbox every single Friday, bring you so much of the same motivation, inspiration, gear picks, things that you love about the show directly into your inbox. Last but not least, I'm putting a call out. I would love your listener questions for an upcoming listener questions episode. So whatever you got, it can be about sports. It can be about life, health, work, career, whatever. The link to leave me one is in the show notes. And with that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Lauren Fleshman. She is a runner. She's the co-founder of Picky Bars, and she is the author of the upcoming title, Good for a girl, a woman running in a man's world. How are you doing today, Lauren? I'm doing well. I've been looking forward to this. I have been looking forward to it too. I've been looking forward to it for a multitude of reasons, which we will get into. But first and foremost, I've got to ask you this episode coming out the week of your book release. How does that feel? <laughs> it feels so good. I, the, the process of writing this book's about three years in the making as far as book proposal to publication, but really like a lifetime in the making before that. But um, the last three years have been pretty tough for just about everybody. And adding a book on top of that, um, my first long form, so that's a challenge in itself, was very tough. So I feel like a, a great sense of accomplishment on the horizon. And I'm looking forward to really like releasing all the stress and anxiety of the buildup and just being out there in the world with the book done with the book done. The last couple of years, as you 
put it, definitely a challenging time for so many. And I know for you, as you've opened up a little bit on social media, difficult, not just because you're putting pen to paper, but also you were dealing with a fair amount of stuff emotionally. Talk to us about Mm -hmm. what the last few years have been like for you personally. Well, I've always been a person with highs and lows, maybe it felt like above average highs and lows compared to my friends, but it also felt like just a part of my sensitive nature. So I didn't see the signs at first that I was entering into a real mental health crisis in the first year of the pandemic. And I, it's hard to tease out what actually caused it, um, but it could have just been that the state of the world being what it was and kind of having that sensitivity that I always have to the people around me, the feelings around me, the state of the world around me. um, It just became too much. And I found that I was in a state of overwhelm and like people say um, fight or flight, but there's also freeze and I tend to freeze. So I I started to kind of withdraw and, um, and gradually got to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't write. I couldn't really engage with my kids and got to the the very scary place of having the thought that my kids would be better off without me and not really feeling like there was a point to being in this world. And luckily, due to a lot of advocacy work by, by other people in suicide prevention, there was a part of me that was like, oh, this is actually a, this is a thing. This, this may not be real. This is a thing that people experience related to depression. And I should just, I just, all I had the energy for was to just tell somebody. And so I told Jesse that I was having those thoughts and, and then that was the important first step to figuring out how to get, get well again. So I was managing that for about a year. And then I had a lot of resistance to taking medication at first, just due to stigma and also kind of my athletic upbringing of like, being anti-substance in general and strapping up, you know, getting things done on your own volition and your own power. And I have all the tools inside me, all that kind of stuff that I, I like to lean into that in most cases, but it did become an obstacle to getting the help that I needed for a while. And then once I got over that, I really started to see improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then I got to kind of write the book through all that, (laughs) which was like, whoa, don't recommend it. But in some ways I'm curious, like, it's impossible to be objective about your own work, but I wonder how the book is seasoned by that depression in its final product. And, but for me, it really just became like, okay, the book's not going to be perfect. It won't be the same book I would have, will have written in a, like a very, I don't know, normal state of mind, I guess, typical state of mind. But I I do feel really proud of the way it turned out. And I feel a, sense, a huge sense of accomplishment that I made it through. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you first and foremost for, for sharing that. I read your tweet back in October and you shared it on your Instagram as well, talking about, you know, going through this difficult time and during that time as well, reading the book, The Tea Party in the Woods to your child and realizing that you didn't remember what happened in the book, despite the fact that you had been reading it so often during that difficult moment. And that so I hate to use the word perfectly depicts, but as someone who also has gone through her own journey of navigating depression, that blacking out of sorts of these moments is so relatable. And it was just so really beautiful to see how others saw your words and really latched on and were excited at the opportunity to say, I'm not alone in this. And I mm-hmm. felt that way too. And what a what a really really great thing. So I guess what I'm you know kind of circling around here to say to you is thank you for sharing that and knowing that you have the opportunity now to help others through your experience. Would you say it took some time for you to get to a place where you knew that you Lauren would be good talking about what you'd been through? Oh yeah, definitely. I, there I had. I have this overarching general confidence that my our lives, not just me, but our lives are a story unfolding and that um, running and sports helped me tap into that as a survival mechanism during the hardest times. It's like, oh, this is not the end. This is just a moment in a story. And the most interesting stories have ups and downs, right? You don't want to, no one wants to read a story where nothing interesting happens, no challenges occur. So I think that there were, there was a part of me that always remembered well, 
yeah, that always remembered basically that this was just going to be a chapter in a larger thing um, of my life. And what I was thinking when you were talking about that tweet, one of the, the gifts that writers can give the world is finding the right, like a, a very tangible moment in time that brings to life a, a like a nebulous, emotion-filled concept like depression or or joy or love or anything, right? It's like if you can describe the tea party in the woods or the feel of a person's touch or the way the light fell, like it's you you take abstract things and you pull them into a scene and it helps people recognize things that they've had trouble putting words to. And and writers do that for me all the time. That's part of what drew me to want to be a writer. It was like, wow, what a what a powerful thing to help do that and, and to be able to give that gift to other people since I receive it from other people so often. And I loved it too. I loved seeing the responses where people were like, oh yes, that is what it feels like. It is that blacking out feeling of like, you're numb. You're just going through life. And one of the ways you know you're better is when something you've done a thousand times has a different feeling all of a sudden. And I'll never forget when I connected with my daughter's laugh for the first time in months, probably in like 10 months, she was on this log out into the creek and I was out on a hike, just going through the motions because you know you're supposed to take your kids outside. There was no actual genuine joy for me in doing it, just like there hadn't been in many months. But then she came out onto this log and she turned around and faced me. And I had been on my medication for a few months at that point. And she she was just beaming in nature. And I, I felt it in my own sternum, that transfer of her joy into my body. And I was, it was like, wow, water in the desert. Like I really have been far gone for a while. Um, it's just, it's so sad. It's such a difficult thing, depression and so common. Yeah. Yeah. So common. And your word again, that you used before freeze also so accurately sums it up. I'll never forget sitting in a small doctor's office over in Borum Hill in Brooklyn. And when I sat down with the nurse practitioner who ultimately finally prescribed me medication after many hurdles, no pun intended to get to it, she looked at me and she said that some of the things that have brought you joy in the past may not feel the same. And it wasn't until she said that to me that I realized as someone else who really does enjoy running, that my running for so many months had just felt like literally something that I did because that's how I identified. Running is something that Mm -hmm. I do, right? But when she said that to me and I thought about the act and the activity that I had been going through the motions of doing day in and day out for months during that struggle, it was like, do I even enjoy this right yeah. now? Is this even making my insides tingle and giving me the same satisfaction that it did when I felt like I could truly feel each stride and the effort that output that, you know, mm-hmm. every single day in and day out gusto that I once had? And the answer was no. So to like that, yeah. when you zoom out and you realize like, holy, wow, I at like this thing, like your children, you love your children. And to go through that, that time when you were like, am I even making them happy? Oh yeah, my God, my heart, my heart. Yeah. Well, and the running really resonates too. And when you were saying that story about realizing that the running wasn't embodied, it wasn't connecting, it wasn't lighting you up. Like it, it, like running is a place that can bring us back to ourselves. And if running isn't bringing you back to yourself and it's just a monotonous motion for months on end, that is a big warning sign. But I was thinking about the gift of creating a practice because if you have a practice in your life that you do regularly that does bring you joy, then you have something like even when there's a time where you're you're down or you're disconnected, you can remain in the practice like the practice carries you through a certain amount of time. And if you don't pop out of it, because we do have natural highs and lows in life, if you don't pop out of it as a, just a standard low, it can be your like canary in the coal mine of like, Hey, this is a thing that has always consistently brought me joy. And it's been longer than a few weeks or a month or a couple months that hasn't been doing that. There's probably something holistically off in me. Um, And then there's just the hurdle of, do I feel safe in community and in culture asking for help? And do I like feel safe as a person? Like, is my identity around solving my own problems, hyper individualism, or am I comfortable being in community and asking for help? And I, it was a, a disability activist on Twitter that 
made a huge difference for me um, during that depression as well, where she was talking, I don't remember her name right now, but she was talking about how in our culture, we value doing things by yourself so much. And we teach it. I've, I've, I've used the language on my kids. Like, Oh, you can tie your shoes all by yourself. You can do this. You can solve that Lego all by yourself. Right. And, and she said like, that is, is depicted as the definition of strength and accomplishment. And my entire life strength looks different. Strength to me is being able to rely on people, being able to ask for help and rely on people. And, and that that is just going to be my daily reality. And the fact is that's able-bodied people's daily reality too, but we can we can like fool ourselves into thinking it shouldn't be or create this toxic culture that it shouldn't be. And it really harms us too. So we have a lot we can learn from the disability community in that way, or at least I have. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That line strength for me is being able to ask others for help. I also would be remiss if I didn't say that it is so clear that you have been writing for quite some time now beyond just obviously the crafting of this book, just the way that you speak is truly beautiful. So I just wanted to make sure that I acknowledge that. But for you, this, uh, this concept of strength, being able to rely on people, do you recall maybe the first time that you truly understood those words that you truly understood that there was benefit in reaching out to others to move forward and get to perhaps where you wanted to be? Oh, it took me way longer than I would have liked it to. And if you read my book, you get to see, you read two stories, you read my personal sports story. And then you also through that story, see the greater, um, like a greater narrative of female bodied people in the sports system built around a male body. But there's this moment when I have my first big crash, I was, you know, engaged in disordered eating. I lost too much weight. I ended up breaking a bone in my foot and it shattered my idea of hyper individualism, um, where I felt deeply alone. I felt like I had banked all my happiness and in accomplishment and, and really believed that bad things only happened to people that, that screwed up that you created your own bad luck. And, um, and, and that's just such a toxic way to think as well. I mean, I love the idea of manifesting. That's great. But also you don't, you're not responsible for all the good things or all the bad things that happen to you. And to think otherwise is, is, is really harmful. I think, um, you have to leave room for bad luck and you also have to leave room for not understanding the larger story of what's happening to you at any given time. But all that came in a very humbling moment of being a favorite to make the Olympic team right out of college and then finding myself with the worst timing, broken foot and kind of all my belief systems crumbling around me right in the lead up to that big moment and um, struggling with Maybe I need to find room for love in my life, for friends in my life. Maybe this ro- romanticized Rocky movie idea of like going out into the woods and eating egg shakes and like seeing nobody and just like, you know, eye of the tigering for however many months and coming out and winning is not actually holistically healthy or the best way to succeed. That maybe we need more than checking all the right boxes and doing all the right training and sleeping all the right hours. And of course, now looking back, that seems silly. I ever thought that way because I'm so much more aware of how humans are social beings and we're wired for connection and all the things that like Brene Brown talks about constantly on her podcast that I have now accepted as like fully real and true and have certainly resonated as I've become a parent and a community member and all those things. But yeah, I was, I, it took learning that the tough way. So I'd say about 21 years old. Sitting on the side of a old. swimming pool. Yeah. Unable oh. to get in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at that time, you had won five NCAA championships at Stanford, prepping for this huge moment. And as you said, this bone breaking in your foot. How do you pick yourself up after a hurdle like that? Oh, uh, well, a lot of a mixture of figuring out where I had gone wrong and then, um, also not figuring it all out. (laughs) So I guess, how did I pick myself up? I think giving myself a break, healing. I just, I I guess I was, it's funny how thinking about hurdles and picking yourself back up, you can pick yourself back up and keep moving forward. But if you haven't actually learned the lesson you need to learn, you're going to hit the same hurdle over and over again until you do. And that's really what happened to me. So it's like picking yourself up and keeping going is step one. 
picking yourself up and having the wisdom and tools to not hit the same hurdle again is like another level. But at first it was just drive, um, medical help (laughs) and coaches and, and a a few people in my life that believed in me that, that got me to run into the next hurdle. (laughs) What was the hurdle that kept tripping you up? Um, so the hurdle that kept tripping me up was fundamentally thinking my body was wrong. That deep down, I didn't believe that the way I was built, the way I was in the world was enough. And that in order to succeed, to achieve the definition of success someone else created in my sport, that I needed to change myself to match the people who were doing that at the highest level. And so it it was really like a losing myself over and over again. And so much of running for me has been, I fell in love with it because it helped me find myself. It helped me be like embodied in a way nothing else did. I was using my body to travel across space and see things, experience the world, have relationships. Like it was, it made me feel incredibly powerful to be able to do that. And then being able to race and like execute a plan and go over hill and dale or around a track, whatever those things were, they were so amazing. But yeah, the like, once you kind of are in a system that tells you what, what winning looks like, what success looks like, those things start to, those forces start to pull you away from yourself. And then there's a wrestling match. And this isn't just in sports, obviously, this is in any kind of career, really. Like you have a gift, you find the place to apply it. And now you're in this world that has its own forces that's pulling on you. And what are you going to do? There's going to be times where it succeeds at pulling you away from yourself. And then eventually you face some sort of obstacle or pain as a result of letting yourself be lost to that force. And then you kind of heal by pulling it back towards yourself. No, this is mine. How do I want to do it? How am I going to do this differently? Like, how do I stay connected to me through this? And the book is this wrestling match over and over again of doing that. And it was, there were several forces doing it, but the one that I focus on in the book the most has to do with women's bodies and how we're taught that our bodies are wrong, that we're taught that there is a right way for it to look and that it's culturally expected that we should be um, resisting the body we have at all times through nutrition, through exercise, you know, exercise is punishment and food is reward and all these sick things we come up with and all the energy we spend in the mirror looking at our beautiful selves and picking ourselves apart Um, and what the amount of space occupied in the pie chart of our mind with what we look like or how we're seen instead of just using all of that power to emit our what only we can offer into the world right i think of it as like i feel i think of body self-consciousness and body shame as like a a muffler on our incredible power of the sound we can put into the world and so that doing the work of removing that muffler and disabling that muffler is like incredibly noble work, not just for yourself and your joy and things like that, but for our collective contribution to society. When you have half of society fed messages that stick a muffler on them, like all of us are losing, men, women, non-binary people, we're all losing from that, right? So I just try to tell that story through running, Um, Mm -hmm. but it, it applies, obviously. It applies. It brings me to that thought that we are the person that we hear the most during any given day, right? Like the Mm -hmm. thoughts that we have when we speak to ourselves, we can, you know, do the best that we can to consciously choose good thoughts. But when those aren't the thoughts that are the most prominent, we can then try our best to respond to them in a way that, you know, serves us, right? And again, as we spoke about both of our experiences navigating depression, there are times in life where maybe that response feels easier than others or even just simply capable. You are capable to respond in a certain way, whereas you may not be at another at another time. And for us to, you know, move forward and recognize that, yes, this is a part of the journey and that we get to, as you so greatly put it, get rid of that muffler. There's a lot of power in that. Yeah. And it's not like it's going to be a removal of negative thoughts. Like you said, it's really like there's a, a, a race that I think about that I write about in the book where I'm, I have this season where I have all these negative thoughts about myself as a racer, about my body, about my competitiveness, whether or not I belong in these races. And that voice gets stronger and stronger and stronger through the course of the season to where I I drop out of races or I don't enter them at all. Um, The anxiety becomes crippling. And what used to be seen as an opportunity 
which was a race, an opportunity to express myself became this like feeling like a cow being led to slaughter. Like there was bad things waiting on the other side of this, only opportunities to fail, to disappoint myself, to disappoint other people. And most of my shame came from having those thoughts at all. I thought that a professional athlete wouldn't have these thoughts. That just further proves that I'm not built for this, that I'm not meant to do this, that I don't have what it takes. When the what I end up learning is that it's it's actually like you everyone has those thoughts. You can never eliminate the thoughts. What you can change is how you relate to those thoughts, like what you were saying earlier. You know, you can change what tools you have to receive them, how long you let them stay rent free in your brain, how what tools you learn to like open a window and let them out, like however it works for you. But if you're still stuck on, I shouldn't even be thinking this, you're going to go to a much darker place. And that was mm-hmm. the same theme that came up with depression for me was shame about even being depressed, shame about letting myself get to that place somehow, which is not productive to helping you move through it. Yeah, no, certainly not productive to helping you move through it. And that and that word that we hate to reference so often, that word should, right? If you're just yeah. busy shooting on yourself, then then <laughs> that uh, you know, that doesn't do anybody any favors. Mm-hmm. I'd love it if we could. We've like had such a great conversation already, and we're only 24 minutes in. But I'm just to give the listeners a little bit more context into. I know we we graced them with the beauty that is the multi hyphenate of you being the co-founder of Picky Bars and an author and an athlete. But before we get into the chapters, kind of for us now, why don't you talk to me a little bit about the let's call it like the prime of your career, right? As an athlete, because we're still mm-hmm. in the prime of our career. We're just yes. in a different phase. <laughs> so as an athlete, you know, competing at world 2003, 2005, 2011, um, you know, the 5k, you're just such a strong athlete. Talk to me about where your head was at, at that time. Did you think that this was going to be something that you kind of like ran until you couldn't do it anymore? Yeah, I really believed I had this belief deep down that I could be if not the best in the world, one of the best in the world. And um I wanted that. I wanted to crack at it. I wanted to uh, have a chance to be on the stages to take a shot at that. I didn't need it, you know, to like I didn't need to be the best in the world, win a gold medal for my career to have been worth it, but I I just loved the idea of competing at that level, of working hard enough and and getting enough lucky breaks to do it. So, but the prime of my career, how others might view it is different from how I, I would view it maybe like 2003, 2005 throughout my, and my college career, which was a lovely time of life. But the, the couple of years after that, I was making world teams and I was running really fast, but I was, I wasn't able to enjoy the highs. I wasn't able to enjoy those moments because I was never satisfied always felt like there was more. I always needed more. And I did. I wasn't at the top of the world yet. And and so what I mistakenly thought at that time of my life was that you'll never get to the top if you let yourself be satisfied. You have to constantly be unsatisfied. You have to constantly be grabbing for more. I never at that stage of my life would have sat there and reveled in my first sub 15 minute 5k. It would have just served as a quick evidence point that this this higher goal could be achieved. But the problem is you'll just always raise the bar. You will always raise the bar for yourself and you will never feel satisfied. And what is the point? If you don't if you don't know how to feel satisfied along the way, you will not feel satisfied when you get to the goal, gold either. Uh, you see it all the time when you watch the Olympics. There's athletes who win a gold medal and you see them on the stand and they look numb. And I know that face. I've never won a gold medal, but I know I've been on the top of other podiums and I know that face. That is a face that has made that goal so important to them that they have blown through all the other things in life to get there. And they don't know how to connect to joy. They don't know how to connect to satisfaction and gratitude because they haven't practiced it. So later in my career, like 2010, 11, and 12, um, only one of those years I made a world team, but I knew how to feel joy and I knew that I had debunked the myth that feeling satisfied before getting to my quote final destination was somehow going to make it less likely I reached that destination. And so I was even able to enjoy races where I ran far off my personal best, but they had, they were the best I'd done that season or they were best I'd done since coming back from an injury. And that joy fed on itself. 
And I felt like I was practicing joy um, so that when I did, if I did get lucky enough to have a big moment, I certainly would have been able to enjoy it. And if you can't enjoy it, what is the point? Like, honestly, what is the point? Especially in something like sport, you're going to retire at 40. If you're lucky, you'll get to be in it that long, somewhere between 30 and 40. You're going to have to start your life over in some other career. And it, within five or six years, it'll all be a distant memory. No one will remember who you are. So <laughs> what are you going to do? Sit there and stare at your metal collection? Like, it's probably going to bring you more sorrow than joy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for someone who's listening to this and, you know, is nodding their head and thinking, well, that all sounds great, but I I can't get there. How do how do they get to joy? How does one get to the place where they can feel the joy and celebrate their own actions? Um, that's a good question. So I might mess the specifics of this up a little bit, but it because I haven't taught her a while to retreat in a while. I teach these running and writing retreats in the outdoors. But Jennifer Loudon is my writing coach, and she has this practice that she calls um, conditions of satisfaction. And it's it's an entire practice based around this exact thing. And she uses it, writing is her medium, right? Because we're all chronically, writers are chronically unsatisfied with their writing, and it's a lot like sport. You're working towards this very distant goal that very few people actually accomplish, which is having a book published and promoted in the media and all that stuff. But a lot of people will want that way more than we'll get it. And so you have to find the motivation to write as a practice almost every day or every day, and you have to find a way to enjoy it along the way, or you'll just be wasting your life. So what she does is she says it has to be um, for your satisfaction, you have to set conditions. One of them is it has to be measurable, right? So you can't just be like, when I feel like I've won, <laughs> like that's not measurable. <laughs> so whatever. Or when my book is successful, that's also not measurable. Um, but what is measurable is a certain number of words that you have written in that day or that you have completed a manuscript, right? These are measurable things. Um, and let's see, what are the other ones? It has to be measurable. Oh gosh, I'm going to need to think about this later because it's been a while. <laughs> but if they, if the thing can, oh, it has to be realistic. That's another one that's really big. That Are you giving me a smart acronym here? Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound. Yeah, it's pretty much like that. Yeah, okay. pretty much yeah, like yeah, yeah. that. And if you can do those things, but then the trick to the conditions of satisfaction is that you set those goals that meet that criteria. And then once you've done them, you must declare yourself satisfied. You have to stop. And declare yourself satisfied. You can't be like, well, I wrote the 1500 words and I finished it in the amount of, or I've done the amount of time, but I could probably do 500 more words right now, right? You just, you have to, you have to lay that down and you have to practice for a while. Let's say you practice it for a month where you don't raise the bar on yourself mid project. You just accomplish the things and you stop at the end and you feel satisfied. You give yourself gratitude for doing it, pat yourself on the back, whatever it is, move on next day, do it again. Then you're practicing engaging with satisfaction. And that feels so good, right? Because then you're like, you can always control that. You can't control if you'll have extra inspiration that day, if you'll really feel on a roll, if you'll tap into flow, like none of that. None of that. None of that. And it's interesting then because the next step from satisfaction, it's like, okay, that's satisfaction. But then how does one change satisfaction or kind of level up on satisfaction to ensure joy? I believe that they end up merging. Okay. One yeah. and the same, intertwined. Yeah, they become, they become, you know, you can't like joy is an emotion that I think you can invite in, but you can't guarantee shows up, but you're not going to invite in joy if you can't accomplish satisfaction. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsors. First up, open. Open is a digital mindfulness platform combining breathwork, meditation, and movement. I am in the middle of a 30-day challenge to kick off the year, and personally, I am loving it. It is crazy for me, someone who used to 
struggle so much to feel as though they were doing quote unquote things right when it came to breathwork and meditation that I genuinely look forward to it each and every single morning. I start my days with about five to 10 minutes of breathwork class and I love doing them sat on the couch in my living room. It's still dark outside and it is my time for calm and coming back into my body before the day starts to get a little bit crazy. And truly, it really does feel in these classes like the teacher is in the room with you. I love how easy it is to follow along and the opportunity for me to give back a little bit to myself first thing. Open offers unlimited live and on-demand breathwork, meditation, yoga, Pilates, and more. Plus, you can connect directly with teachers during in-class live streams. It is designed for all levels and they partner with musicians, producers, sound designers, DJs, and curators to co-create classes for an immersive experience that takes you deeper into your practice. Trust me, it's pretty cool. Let's take a class together. Open is giving her to listeners 30 days absolutely free when you visit withopen.com slash hurdle. Again, join me over on open by heading on over to withopen.com slash hurdle. Let me know what y'all think and I will see you in class. Also got to give some love to my friends at Element. Element is an electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. It is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, and 60 milligrams magnesium. But with none of the junk. That means no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. I am, oh my gosh, I am obsessed with Element. I'm a big fan of their watermelon salt flavor, but they have different tastes for every style, ranging from citrus and chocolate, which, oh my God, if you warm it up in the winter, the perfect hot chocolate, I'm telling you, to orange and raspberry. Whether you're leaning into it as a sport beverage or simply just making sure you're getting your electrolytes in because they play a critical role in so many other conditions and serve so many functions, Element has got you covered. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any order. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors and share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinklmnt.com slash hurdle. This deal is only available through my link. Again, head on over to drinklmnt.com slash hurdle to get yours risk-free today. Okay. Wow. So we're making, we're making some big moves here to get to a place where we're not only satisfied, but we also have the opportunity to experience joy. So for you, where would you say within your running, you were at peak joy? Oh yeah. Peak joy was once I started working with my coach, Mark um, Roland in Eugene. So I was in my late twenties, 30 years old. I'd had enough roller coaster rides. So I can give some of the credit to me and Mark, but a lot of it was just the setup from the years before that, that were tough, the hard earned lessons and whatnot. But I was, um, I was a proper grown up. My coach treated me like a proper grown up. I had agency over my career. He certainly provided the, um, scaffolding and structure, but I, he made it clear that I was responsible for bringing the magic. I was responsible for getting it done. And he wasn't going to chase me around and make sure I did it. He wasn't going to treat me like a child. And I responded really, really well to that. I wanted to, it helped me stay connected to the fact that I was doing it for myself, right? In the end. And it helped me stay grounded. So once I was doing that and I had my practice of my conditions of satisfaction where I would stay, I would set a goal and I put it in the distance. I went through the effort of really being mindful of what that goal should look like, like kind of like a, like a good, better, best. Like it was more of like a, a target so that there were there was there were more than there was more than one way to succeed right so if my goal was just like make the olympics that's the bullseye 
there's things out of my control that can't guarantee that. So the next ring out could be um, run about in this, like this time zone is what I would consider acceptable. Like if I do all these things well and I do them the best I can, this would be an acceptable year. Um, and so I, I set the goals like that. But then once I had confidence that I'd put in the time and I was mindful about setting the goal, I left it over there on the shelf. And then I focused 99% of my energy on the day-to-day tasks that I had identified as being necessary to get there. And it was a lot like writing a book where you just know, like to write a book, you have to, as Anne Lamott says, write it bird by bird. Like if you're writing a book on birds, you write it bird bird by bird. And and that chapter has a certain number of words and you get those words done and you declare yourself satisfied and you wake up the next day and you do it again. And I started building my life in a way that um, was was built around that structure. And I like listened yeah. to the same music in the morning before hard workout days. And I, I tried to just drop myself into the present moment a lot. And um, I went on runs on my easy days and I, I paid attention. I made sure I was like paying attention to the trails around me, to the nature around me, the people around me, like, like not just zoning out and numbing my way through life. And that, that was, that just felt good. Like the day to day, there were so many days that felt good, that felt there, there was beauty in them that my running and my goal setting was like, was an avenue, like a way to live life. It wasn't life. It was a way to, to engage with life. Um, and that there's so many of those paths that different people pick. And I was just picking running at that stage. And I was aware of that. I was aware of its actual place in my life and the purpose it was supposed to bring me and that, and doing my role that I could every day to help it bring me that. And then acknowledging that the rest is kind of up to luck and chance. And that, God, that was fun. I won a national title that year. I didn't run my fastest time of my life, but I did win a title and I was seventh in the world. And the coolest thing I think was that before the world championships in Daegu, South Korea, I had this little tingling that I could maybe win a medal. And nobody has ever finished higher than seventh in the in the world, um, in the 5k. So it wasn't like I had a long line of champions that I could look up to and it didn't, the Ethiopians and Kenyans really dominate the event. So it's not super realistic to win a medal, but, um, but I did have this inkling that maybe I could do it. And I let myself lean into that without needing it to happen. I was like, how fun to get to a stage in your life where like you genuinely believe you have a chance, right? Like why ruin that by, putting a bunch of realism on top of it. Oh, well, no one's <laughs> ever done it. Wah, wah, wah. I'm like, well, yeah, you probably won't do it, but you might as well like ride this wave and and be and let this light you up. The race will be more fun. And it was, it was so fun. I ended up seventh, but it was like, it was just great. It was yeah, great. And I, when I became so a coach, I, I wanted to try to create an environment where my athletes could feel feel that for themselves, that thrill of potential, like of a chance without the stress of what if the chance doesn't happen? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sitting here with this like big goofy grin on my face because I just (laughs) love that concept of knowing the possibility exists and just going based on feel. I love like, why are you going to let realism come in and be the thing (laughs) that totally dampens this moment, right? Like live the moment, have your joy, feel the feels and keep going toward whatever it is that your big potential might exist. And I mean, you're talking about the 2011 world champs. This is the same year that you also debuted in the marathon finishing 12th (laughs) in New York city, such a complete polar opposite high. Like, okay. Versus (laughs) marathon. What made you decide that you wanted to do this one New York City marathon? (laughs) Well, it was it was a mixture of things. I think that I was like addicted at this point to the joy of running. I was so connected to myself. I felt like, why not do a challenge that make like kind of makes absolutely no sense to anybody else to go from the 5k to a marathon right before an Olympic year while I'll be where I'll be training for the 5k. Um, But there was also really good money in it. Like there's not really good money in track at all. And the roads, if you're good at the marathon, you are getting paid, like you're getting paid four, five, six figures to show up. Um, I was not getting paid six figures, but I got a pretty good offer to show up and race New York. And there was something, I mean, you know, people can say it's distasteful to talk about money or it makes it less pure if money was part of it. But it was like, it really felt like I had, I had reached a level in sport that I wanted to celebrate where somebody 
wanted to invite me and pay me to come and bring not just my athleticism, but my spirit, my energy, my enthusiasm, my honesty, my rawness to the experience. And, uh, and I, so I wanted to do that. I wanted that whole experience and I brought Jesse with me and we, yeah, we had a really, we had a really good time. We had a really good time. You know, I, I'm one to cheer for New York all the time. I've run it five times. It's have you I live five? here. Yes. <laughs> I live here. I'm coming to you live from Brooklyn right now. Like yeah. I just think there's like truly nothing better. So for me, selfishly, I guess I'm happy that that was the experience that you got to have because there's just, in my opinion, absolutely nothing like it. This is also 2011, the year before you joined Wazelle. Talk to us a little bit about making that decision. You did kind of just, you know, hint at the fact that it's not about money, but was that a part of making the decision to walk away from Nike and and go that route? Um, well, I've definitely felt undervalued at Nike when I went back into contract negotiations heading into 2012. So I had just finished seventh in the world and I'd done this New York marathon and I felt in some ways like I was in my prime, like really in my prime of knowing myself, engaging with my sport, engaging with my community and feeling a lot of joy. And, but I also wanted to have a baby and, um, and that was something that was kind of like an unforgivable desire at that time in my sport and in sports in general. Like it was a death sentence on your career, basically. Uh, And so it was very common practice at that time before like Alicia Montano and Kara Goucher and Allison Felix helped um, through this New York Times documentary explode the idea or explode um, the sporting world's way of treating pregnancy. And and contracts have shifted since then to create some pregnancy protection. But before that, there wasn't. And so when you came to negotiate, if you were near 30 years old, um, unless you explicitly said, I never want to have a child, you were going to experience discrimination. You were going to be paid less um, because they were going to assume that you were going to have a baby and that your best years were behind you, that you were, you were essentially one foot out the door. And so when I went back in, I was honest that I wanted to have a baby, but I was also honest that I felt like I was in my prime and that I wanted to come back and race. But I also wanted to story, continue storytelling that having a child could be part of the larger story. Like, why wouldn't it be? Like, obviously not all women have babies, but it's a thing that happens fairly regularly. And the fact that it's considered like incompatible with sport didn't make sense to me. But Nike didn't value that at all. And, and they just didn't have any women in the room, really. I was like, it was like trying to translate your lived experience to a different species at that time. And it was very frustrating. And so I got this contract offer that was very, very, very low. And I was also going to be suspended the year I was pregnant because that was the standard practice at the time. So not getting paid anything and not allowed to seek money from a competitive sponsor during that time, just required to work for free. So I just was like, screw this. And I had been developing sort of this online crush for the company was all because they were woman owned, women led. Um, their CEO ran their Twitter account and I was running picky bars and we were sort of learning from each other online, how to leverage social media tools when you don't have a big advertising budget to connect and build community and, and build a customer base. And, um, and so we'd had this little relationship that was more like work peers, but then I want, I was like, I need to talk to this person. I need to talk to Sally Bergeson. I want to find out how, if it's possible for us to work together, because how cool would that be to do something totally different and do it, it with a woman centered approach. And it was just like night and day. I mean, the pay wasn't honestly very different, but I wasn't going to get suspended, um, for being pregnant. And I did become a partner. So I got stock. So I would be able to be like a part owner in the company. And if the company succeeded, I I would win too. And that was unheard of at the time. And, um, and I just remember the conversation where I told Sally, well, I just want you to know, I do want to have a child this year. And, um, she was like, great, we'll throw you a baby shower. And I was like, what? (laughs) Uh, and I was like, well, what will I get suspended? What about the suspension? She's like, why would you get suspended? sometimes women have babies. That's just a fact. Like, and I was like, Oh my God, I don't have to translate myself here. And I got so excited about the potential of what that could mean overall, if you don't need to translate yourself. And that's not just in the running world or specific to Wazelle. I think that's like, we're at an exciting time in history as women right now, where we have reached critical mass in enough industries. Whereas 50 years ago, we were like the oddball or whatever was the one female attorney 
in a firm or whatever. And we have made a lot of progress, but we're only just now getting to critical enough numbers in those spaces where we're like, hey, we don't actually have to just adapt to the existing culture. We can shape the culture. We can design this place around us. And it doesn't actually matter if men have uteruses um, because if, you know, like we can create a parental leave policy, even though this doesn't apply to their direct lived experience with a uterus, we can create a policy that then everyone can benefit from, right? Like, so I think that, that that's an exciting thing about the story in my book of a woman-led company and making that move. I wanted to help shift people's thinking in the sports world at that time of what could be possible. When do you think your passion for storytelling was born and what have you gotten out of taking hold of the reins and telling your story, maybe in a way that other athletes have not? Um, gosh, well, I was just reading to my kids this morning a story that I won a writing contest in fourth grade for a little <laughs> story called Amy's Adventures. And I would enter the writing contest every year. I love I've always loved storytelling, but I've always loved reading. So I think that probably my love my passion for storytelling came from being changed by other people's stories from having my view of the world expanded beyond beyond my cul-de-sac in like working class canyon country and seeing this portal to other experiences to other ways of being and thinking and doing and um and then once i got older and was reading stories that were very raw about like it's easy to judge experiences that you have never had yourself right and I think that like we can, you know, people have a difficult time with concepts of like white privilege or racism or sexism or all these things. If you haven't, if you don't feel you've experienced it yourself, you can kind of like abstract it or be like, oh, that's just in people's imaginations. But the power of story works way better than statistics, research papers in sticking you in someone's shoes, feeling their heartbeat, feeling their adrenaline. Then you can develop empathy and compassion. And so storytelling is absolutely critical to like a functioning society and to growth so that you don't have to have hit every hurdle yourself to learn the lessons from other people's hurdles. And so once I experienced that, I wanted to, I wanted to provide that in the sport world specifically. And I also felt like it was being rewarded. So once I started storytelling, um, brands were interested in sponsoring me. People people could see that I was adding a value that was different than just podiums and newspaper clippings. And I loved this power that it gave me and that it, the opportunity opened, especially for female athletes who only get 4% of the media coverage or whatever, and 1% of endorsement dollars. We don't have to wait for the New York times or the wall street journal or San Francisco Chronicle or whatever to decide our sports moment is worth writing about. We can just write about it. We decide what stories we tell. We can decide that the story of hitting the hurdle is the most important story to tell in great emotional detail. And our audiences will find us. And I think, I know that it impacted a lot of the athletes of my era to step out and do more storytelling. And it's very common now. I think it's like, it's actually a job expectation now um, that you do it. And there, that's a whole other thing is like, should athletes be required to tell their personal lives on the internet or should it be enough that they're winning races and breaking records right and um and so like i'm not here to answer that question but it's just <laughs> something that i that i've watched evolve over my time but i know that it brought me great value to to be the teller of my own story and i highly recommend that to people around me otherwise you're just at the mercy of other people's definition of success and even if the only person you're telling the story to is your journal like that's it's a way to like mark down what you feel is important and stay connected to that. Yeah. A few things to double click on here. The first being that storytelling has evolved in such a way since you first started, right? Because when you started, you were mostly blogging. Is that right? Yeah. So now like the blog has transferred over to what is social media and different medians of storytelling as well, whether that be actual writing or video. So that's like such an interesting evolution as well. Absolutely. And like the different ways, like some people um, use it purely for entertainment, right? To show a completely different side of themselves than their yeah. profession, which is really cool. I think there's a lot of ways to do it. I, I got like, I'm, I was really well suited to blogging and 
Um, I loved Instagram and I loved Twitter, but I never got into like video really. It was not my, not my, there's still time for you, Lauren. (laughs) You're right. There is. (laughs) We're not done just yet. We're not done. There's that. And then the other thing, uh, really to touch on here is just this, this concept of, that everyone has a story to tell and the opportunity to tell it yourself instead of letting someone else tell it for you. I find that, and I'd be, I'm curious to know your experience with this, that oftentimes those that are hesitant to tell their story have this mindset that, well, what's the point? Like what makes me so unique? Like who's going to read, who's going to read this. And I love what you said, which was like, even if you're just telling it to your journal, you have the opportunity to tell your own story. So for someone that may feel hesitant to put pen to paper, to tell their own story, to take ownership of that narrative, what advice do you have for them? Well, I would just say that I really don't believe people are most inspired by the successes and victories that we see. I think that we see those and a part of our brain recognizes them as success and we may feel jealousy or envy or some other moment of attachment and engagement with them. But the things that really affect our hearts and minds are people's everyday struggles and their own insights and and realizations. I mean, we started off this podcast talking about me reading a children's story multiple times and not knowing I was reading a book at all, right? Like that's just a little, very ordinary slice of life that has nothing to do with being a national champion athlete or or an author or anything. Um, and that was passed around to thousands of people that don't even know that I was an athlete or author. They connected with that moment of, of like realization. Right. And I think everybody has a, a rich life that is delivering them realizations at all times. And we don't want to lose those for ourselves. So I think it's important to mark them, whether it's in the journal or whatever, but also don't like don't underestimate the value it could bring to somebody else's life. Like you think about the most important people in your life are ordinary people living ordinary lives that are full of complete like richness and thickness and depth. And you are that too. You are changing people's lives the way they are shaping your life every day. Um, So even if the stories we tell are just to our friends, like over wine or cocktails or water, you know, (laughs) just valuing ourselves. I think there's like, that's like the thing that, if you start reading more memoir from don't read the memoirs of Olympic champions, you know, read the memoirs of ordinary folks, like read Mary Carr and um, like, I don't know, there's a lot, but just read ones where people are talking about life and what regular life teaches us and, and soak in their words. And, and it helps see that our everyday life is valuable, whether we write about it or not. Yeah. You know, it's funny that that sentiment that you shared that like we can be changed by this ordinary person. Right. And in your Instagram bio, you literally have the words, let's change shit. What does (laughs) let's change shit mean to you? What should we be changing? (laughs) Well, I think when I wrote that, um, I really believe in just questioning the way things have been done. Um, and doing the work in your life of anything you're doing on autopilot, uh, like not assuming that that is the best way for you to do it, or even the best way for society to do it. Like we're doing the things the way we're doing them because of the decisions of people thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, 50 years ago. And those are the norms. And this is the place we have been born and grown up in and we're doing it right. But everything from like the way we think about love, relationships, capitalism, money, rest. Like I love the idea of stopping to think about the choices we make every day and and saying, do I make this choice with my own agency? Do I think about this? Have I actually really thought about this? Do I value this myself or have I inherited this and I'm just taking it for granted? And that's a process. You don't have to rush and go through everything in one year. It takes a lifetime, right? So let's change shit is partially about that, like connecting with yourself, what is actually meaningful and valuable to you, opening your mind, opening your heart. And if you do that, you're probably going to find things you're passionate about fundamentally changing in the world or in your community. And you're going to, you're going to have enough fire to go do it. It won't be an abstract thing, right? Somebody's political campaign that you've heard the message of a hundred times has no meaning until you've stopped and sat down and thought about it. But you may be knocking on doors before you know it. 
Yeah. Before you know it. And on that line of Instagram, you know, someone comes to your page, they see a, an athlete, a writer, uh, Wazelle brand strategy advisor, you've got 70,000 followers, but when you look in the mirror, Lauren, what is it that you see looking back at you? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I see somebody I'm really proud of right now. I see, I see my aging lines. I see my, um, I see my freckles, the same freckles from when I was a kid. I see, I see tiredness <laughs> from my kids, from raising my kids and from all the things. I see the wear of the world that I've lived in and that I'm in the life I'm trying to live, the evidence of my existence. And I'm really proud of myself for growing and, and remaining open-hearted and open-minded. I feel like I feel like I'm at the beginning of my best years. When you think about what excites you right now, aside from the book, what comes to mind? I think just my loved ones, building closer relationships with people. Relationships have been on the back burner in the name of career for a long time in my life, most of my life. And I let select ones in, but I think that I've still been afraid to be truly open-hearted and really put roots down in a community. So I'm excited to do that more. Yeah, I think engaging with youth on the topics of my book, wherever, whatever happens after that, I want to stay open to the change makers who want to do something about the issues in the book and see what comes from it. So I think there's a lot, I have a lot more questions than answers about what I'll be doing next but that's a good place to be too. (laughs) I love that perspective because so often, you know, when you think of a situation and you realize that you do have so many questions about what's to come, that can be a truly overwhelming place to be in. But for you to really embrace and kind of relish in this way is, uh, it's a little outside the box. Yeah. I think that the midlife crisis exists for a reason, right? I think it's like, um, it's more of a midlife opportunity, really, but it's you've you've lived long enough on this planet to realize you haven't got everything right. You've you've gone far enough down certain roads you chose a long time ago to to now wonder if they still fit, if they're still the right road for you. And I am firmly in the middle of that. I'm firmly in the middle of like, okay, my whole life has been related to running in some way up until this point. And I've enjoyed it, but I also have hopefully many more years to come. And what lights me up. I love creating. I love community. I want to, I think I want to spend less of my life trying to reach as many people as possible and try to go narrower and deeper in my relationships. I'm less enthusiastic about social media. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to relate to the larger world issues that I do care about, but firmly from this new place that feels right to me, which is I don't want to chase anyone's approval. I don't want to dance to other people's drums. I really want to make sure that I'm mindful about the choices I'm making in this world um, and that the work that I need to do, I'm bringing myself to it, my real self to it. I don't want to dance to anybody else's drums. Okay, final two questions for you here, Lauren. First question, you are a woman of many words. Again, new author, new book. But if you had to choose one word at the top of a new year here, 2023, a word that you're carrying with you into this year, what is it? Mm, I'm going to say love. Do you have a why? (laughs) Yeah, I think that loving the people in my life being led by love will really help me with a lot of a lot of these transitions and choices right now you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice i'm going to bring us back to where we started at the top of this episode you're going through a time that it feels like you're in a room and you cannot open the blinds you're sitting in the darkness and we're feeling as we said earlier frozen you have an opportunity to offer that version of yourself a piece of advice, knowing what you know now during that hurdle moment. What do you tell her? So much of your pain in life has come from thinking you needed to change who you are to get what you want, when really you need to be more you. You need to spend the time figuring out who you are, what makes you tick what your offerings are and turn the light up on those things 
be more of those things. And that is going to give you that, give you the runway to a uniquely yours path. Get rid of all that friction of trying to get on somebody else's path or be somebody else. A uniquely yours path. Lauren Fleshman, so excited that we were able to sit down and I'm so excited for you in this beautiful new chapter, no pun intended, filled with <laughs> love. How do the hurdlers follow along with you? How do they keep up with you? Give us all of your details. Uh, well, Fleshman Flyer on Instagram, Lauren Fleshman on Twitter, and then laurenfleshman.com is my website, which is currently a landing page for um, my book, for pre-ordering my book. But yeah, you could, I'd say the best way to get to know me is to buy Good for a Girl and and read from start to finish, <laughs> and it'll probably take you five hours. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a pretty quick read if you have the time. If you have the time, I am over at Emily Body and at Hurdle Podcast. I'll link the book in the show notes. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. 